This episode is sponsored by Shoutout, a two-way text messaging and campaign management platform that provides analytics and facilitates conversational messaging that delivers, engages, and converts more. Send personalized campaigns from unique phone numbers to the message content itself, letting you brand your campaign to promote yourself and create your messages in a way that users are made to think you sent it personally for them. You can then monitor and improve your campaigns over time with real-time analytics. Start reducing messaging and campaign costs with cost-effective bulk SMS. Scale efficiently without having to worry about high costs. If you'd like to start using mass texting services with simple packages to choose from, visit GetShoutOut.com today. This is your host, Akhil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the top metrics that will drive higher SaaS valuations and many things you don't know about selling your SaaS business that can actually hurt you. Today, we have our guest, Lowell Ricklefs, joining us. Lowell is the, CEO, is the CEO and founder of Traction Advising, a hands-on M&A firm focused on helping B2B SaaS companies with over $5 million in ARR get acquired. They exist to help you sell your company. Lowell has been a founder, he's been a CEO, and a buyer of multiple companies, as well as the COO of a $120 publicly traded company, which he brought to a $260 million exit to a private equity company. He's been a startup CRO, global VP, and also worked at Rockwell. He's a global mentor, investor, board member, and CEO coach. He's, he's, a, he's you know big in the space. So uh, welcome, Lowell. Super excited to have you on the SaaS District Show today and learn more about you. Thanks so much. No, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. So let's start with, you know, one of the most sought after questions I get from founders, right? That's the first conversation we typically have. You get that, you know, peak of interest. People are like, hey, you're looking to sell your business. Like, all right, let's talk. Let's talk about valuations, right? Whether they're thinking about it or they're not planning it. Um, from your perspective, you work with, you know, thousands of founders you talk to every single year. How have the valuations evolved and changed in the market for specifically for B2B SaaS companies? Um, let's talk about, you know, first the under 5 million ARR and then, you know, from the 5 to 20 million, which, which you work on. Sure. So I think it's important, first of all, to understand who's going to buy companies with less than five million in ARR. And and typically, if it's sold to a strategic, it's 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 to fit a, a product gap, or it's typically a product gap, probably ninety percent of the time. So um, and then for uh, a private equity backed strategic company, it's going to be an add on. So they'll have a platform company that supports a strategy or a thesis, and then they'll. They'll, they'll do add-ons that are smaller because platforms have to be 10 million or more. That's why that's such a demarcation line. But they'll add on, it's not a technology platform, it's a, like a strategy or a thesis platform. And then companies with two, three, four, five million, six, seven million, they like as add-ons because they're trying to double the growth organically and then they're trying to double it inorganically. So those are the acquisitions. So overall valuations have gone up and they're driven by a couple of things. And I mean, there are a number of different things. The two biggest ones that I see is that uh, money has been almost free for a number of years, right? So if you look at how private equity and private equity is almost $5 trillion in assets under management, which represents about 20% of the value of the New York Stock Exchange. So um, it's, it's huge. They've taken over the entire lower end of the stock market since it became expensive to go public with Sarbanes-Oxley in 2002. So 
So, so they buy companies and they, they use leverage, right? Like a mortgage on your house to, to buy a company. And when that debt is inexpensive, they can afford to, to buy, to pay more. Um, the other thing is simple supply and demand. You know, since 2002, private equity stepped in. I mean, they've averaged up to 40% internal rates of return. So the, the, the money multiplies 16 times over 10 years. So a $100 million fund becomes $1.6 billion. What do you do with the 1.6 billion? You roll it back into, into more investment. So there's just an oversupply of capital that's trying to find a home, which has driven the valuations up. And then I guess the, the, the third thing would be the public markets. If you look at the valuations of the, the publicly traded companies, they're extremely high. Some are exotically high, right? You see, you know, valuations over 20x on the publicly traded companies. And that has filtered down, and they've doubled really over the last five years. And some of that has filtered down to the, the, the privately held companies and, and the money that gets raised. It, it, it hasn't quite doubled. It's up about 50%. It's definitely gone up. And then I'm actually curious right now, just reading the tea leaves, just over the last couple of weeks, as the, the public stock markets have come down, the high-flying tech stocks have come down, the IPO tech stocks last year have not done particularly well. I haven't seen much change yet in, on the deals that we're working on right now. But it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out as interest rates get higher. And but but a lot of it is still supply and demand. There's still more money out there chasing not enough deals. Got it. So when when you look at valuations, right? I mean, that's what I think most uh, sellers are looking at, right? They're looking at publicly traded companies trading at 20, 40x AR, and then they're looking at you know TechCrunch, right? Who have just raised you know ten million dollars at you know you know half a million in, in ARR. Um, but realistically, what is the expected valuation for a private SaaS business? What, what can they expect? And, and maybe let's break it up, you know, under 5 million, because it's a different buyer who's looking at yeah, what they're willing to pay. It right? is. Under 5 and then, you know, 5 to 20, let's say. Yeah. So the first thing I'll say, one thing I think it's important to understand is VC valuations are higher than, than private equity buying a company. So if, because VC is buying a piece of your company and they're really looking at, at, at high growth and future valuations. So they're less concerned about valuation someone that's buying your entire company cares more about what the value is because they're buying the whole thing. And, and that's, that's, and if, if you're a, a financial buyer, you know, goal is buy low, build it, and then, and then sell high. In the tiers that I see, you know, less than a million in revenue, it's, it's, it's really, it's difficult. You've got to find the right fit to sell a company because people, they want to buy the team, they want to buy the tech and they want to buy the revenue. If the revenue isn't significant to the buyer, um, often they, they, they just, they'll prioritize deals that are larger, that move the needle on, on the revenue side. So less than a million is tough. Over 2 million, you become viable as an add-on. Over 5 million, you become much more viable. But, but just think about it. You know, you're, if you're going to be a plug into a technology company, there's a subset of buyers that, that do what you do, that you, are, you could become a part of their product suite, right? Or you could be geographic expansion. So you've just got fewer buyers. When you're over 10 million, you can be the platform. So anyone with a thesis. So it becomes, you know, call it five to 10 to 20 times as many potential buyers, which just drives up the valuation. And then if you get over 20 or 50 or 100 million, there are just fewer B2B SaaS companies in that space. So there's not a really short answer. I will tell you the, the short answer would be the vast majority of deals in the, in the five, well, under five, it's probably typically going to be in the two to five times range. You know, you might might bump up to six, you know, and you can go higher, but that's where the vast majority will be, call it 80%. For in the five to 10, you know, it's typically going to be, call it four to six times revenue. And then over 10, it's, I'd call it six to 10. But it, 
It depends on a lot. I know we're going to talk about that. I think we may talk about that next, but it, it, it depends on a lot of the fundamentals that you've got behind it. And I can, I can tell you what they care about most as well. And so we're talking specifically of a plugin of a product, which is, you know, the strategic buyer. Um, and, you know, you mentioned those valuations. Is, is it the same that you're seeing on, uh, from the PE firms? And, you know, when are they typically interested? Well, what's interesting is, you know, historically people think, oh, private equity and strategic. The reality is, I would say the majority of buyers for small SaaS companies, so less than 10 million in, in ARR, are private equity-backed strategic companies. So it's a strategic, but they're private equity-backed. So you kind of get the best mm -hmm. of both worlds. You get the advantage of scale within a strategic. I mean, the reason strategists can pay more is, in theory, they've got more customers than you do. They've got 10,000, you've got 100. They can just do a marketing plan. In theory, your product is infinitely scalable. They roll it out to all their clients and they can grow tremendously. As opposed to just buying an asset and saying we have to grow it organically, it's, it's tougher. Um, so... I, I lost my train of thought. The original question was: <laughs> so, so, was is there a difference between you know what the the financial buyers are paying uh, versus the strategic? Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, and again, a, a financial buyer to buy you outright, um, you've got to be over ten million uh, for the most part uh, to be a platform, and they will pay a higher valuation partially because you're over ten million and partially because you're a platform. They'll pay a premium for platform companies. They'll typically pay less for or add-ons, but PE-backed strategics, again, you've got the advantage of scale as a strategic, but you've got an active buyer, right? They've got a five-year roadmap to deploy capital and make money. So you've got a very aggressive active buyer with the PE backers of the strategic companies. Um, so having said that, it kind of blurs the lines a little bit, and mm -hmm. I don't see... You know, private equity, you've got the value buyers that will pay one to 2X. You've got the high flyers that'll pay 10X or more. The majority of them are kind of in the middle that, that kind of be those, those median valuations. There's not the difference that, that people used to think that there was. The, the valuations paid by, private ec paid by private equity companies is very similar to strategics. Okay. That's the so, short answer. Yeah. No, no, I like it. So we, we have a range, right? 1X all the way up to 10X. Obviously, we talked about, you know, the revenue breakout of where the difference lies and how you can, you know, move up to the next tier of, of getting higher valuations. What are other metrics, right, that, that are looked at and considered when weighing the value of a company? I know, I know growth yeah. is one of them. Uh, what are some other ones? Yeah, the two biggest, I would say mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the reason people pay a premium for SaaS companies, it comes down to growth and retention. They're buying an annuity stream. So if you've got high growth, you know, greater than 40%, you know, if you're greater than 100%, you know, you're clearly in that category and you've got good retention. So logo churn is low and net revenue retention is high. So, you know, you, your customers are sticky. They tend to stick around and existing clients tend to buy more from you over time that outweigh your, your losses. Those are by far the most valuable because another way to look at it is if you've got 50% churn, if you think about it, in theory, that cohort is gone in two years, right? You lose. So you, it's not really recurring revenue. It's like a two-year license. And those are valued. Companies with that churn profile are valued more like the traditional license and, and maintenance model. So, so growth is a big one, right? If you're, if you're declining, it's tough to sell, right? I, I, I quote private equity firms that no one wants to catch a falling knife, right? A little, little harsh, but it's graphic. <clears throat> um, if you're like most companies that sell, the honest answer is if you are 100% growth, 
why would you sell your company? It's just going to be far more valuable, you know, year after year, if you believe it's sustainable. So most of the companies that choose to sell are in that middle ground. So they're anywhere from, um, you know, 10, 10 to 30% growth is pretty common. The next year would be in that, like the, the 40 to 50%, you know, so they, they, they follow that rule of 40. And clearly the multiples are higher if you're over 40% uh, than if you're in that 10 to 30, than if you're flat. And if you're declining, like I say, it's, it's, it's difficult, it's tough story. So, so you've got the, um, so growth is a big one. I mentioned logo churn, the net retention, Customer concentration is another one. If you've got more than 40, 50% of your revenue with um, a single client, uh, that can bring the valuation down. Mm. Market size is a big deal, right? Are you a, are you a point solution? Or are you a, a potential platform that, that someone can build around? You know, is your TAM, if every single user um, seat gets sold, if, you know, and, and if, if the business is 25 million, it's probably not that valuable. You know, if it's potentially a billion or more, if they're adjacent markets or other countries, uh, then it's worth more. But that can limit the valuation as well. And then EBITDA, I'll say it, it matters. There, there, there are lots of anecdotal situations out there where companies that are burning a lot of cash get purchased for huge valuations. But I will say those are the exception. The vast majority of companies that get sold, they don't have to be super profitable if they're growing. But being break-even is meaningful. And it really comes down to when someone buys your company, they don't want to have to keep investing in it. Typically, it's not always right. the case, but the vast majority that's true. So being break even or slightly profitable is helpful. Many of the large strategics, right? If there's large strategics, if they're priced on EBITDA valuations of earnings, right? Like most publicly traded companies are, the SaaS buyers aren't, but often the company that might buy you will struggle for the multiples of revenue if they're if they're tied to multiples of EBITDA. So being profitable helps at least erase the equation of what would it take to become profitable. Right. It's a, it's, it's a risk profile that, you know, at least they, they can they can erase off the table, right? Um, so, yeah. so there's that, that yeah. comparison, right? I'm, I'm at a stage, let's let's use an example. If I'm a founder, I'm at 1 million in ARR. Maybe I raised some capital years ago, like a single round of an angel round. Is, you know, they're on, they're on my cap table. And maybe I just haven't been able to grow in this company as fast as I like, but you know I'm pretty happy with it. But I'm I'm kind of considering both options, right? I have a bell, I have one option of maybe I go out now and sell 100% of my company, or I can go back out to because because you mentioned PEs and you know, all the, all these uh, players in the space who are buyers with a lot of capital, but it's also the same with, with VCs, right? And they're also paying higher valuations as well. Um, how should I look at that from from both sides? Okay, should I sell my company or should I go and raise VC capital and or you know and continue to grow the business? You know, it's, it's it's kind of it's almost philosophical. There's no magic formula. I mean, a lot of it I think has to do with. I mean, just having been a, a founder and, and and gone through the different phases, part of it depends on: Do you still believe in it? Do you genuinely believe in it? Right when you have that conversation with yourself in the mirror and you say, you know, can I? You know, and I know how sometimes it changes day by day. Sometimes there's days you think, you know, we're dead, and the next day you get a big contract. You know, we're going to be a billion dollar company, right? So it can be, but. I think it, it, so part of it depends on the burnout factor. Like, do you, do you, are you, are you still in it? Cause if you raise more money, you know, you're committed for multiple years, you know, you're probably got another, another five years to go. Um, you know, is the market out there? Do you see a path to get there? Do you believe raising that capital will solve the the, the problem that'll, that, that will help you get to where, where you need to go? You know, a lot of it is the, you know, the, the, the people that, that you can bring the money on, do, do you want to work with them? Do you want them on your board? Do you want to be a part of it? Um, you know, or do you want to be, do you, or do you believe we have a great product? I see this a lot. We have a great product. We have market, product market fit. 
but I'm a product person or I'm a developer. I'm not a sales and marketing person. I don't like sales and marketing people, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to go out and hire those people. I don't understand them and I don't think I'm good at hiring them, right? I mean, some version of that story, you say, well, but if I'm acquired by a company that has a hundred sales reps in this massive marketing machine, they can promote my product you know, to their existing client base and others. And then I can see my baby scale much more quickly. And then, mm -hmm. then it's a, then that's attractive, but, but you'll be a part, you know, you're going to be an employee. You're going to be a part of something bigger. It's a very different life than, than going it alone. So yeah, it's, it's never, it's not always an easy decision to make. Mm. Yeah. And that's exactly what the, the founders we typically work with as well, right? Like they're the ones product driven. They love building product, but they don't like the sales and marketing. And that's where, you know, our expertise, we complement each other uh, and, you know, we, we can, we can win together, but you know, aside from the burnout factor, right? So I know there's a quote by Charles de Gaulle. He says, genius sometimes consists of knowing when to stop, right? And how, how, when you're talking to advisors, other than, you know, are you tired? Are you burnt out? What, how else are you advising them? You know, and, and when is the right time? And what does it take to plan, plan and execute a successful exit of your SaaS company? If they're, if they're even thinking about it, you know, one is, you know, predicting the market. Obviously, some people think, okay, something's going to happen. You know, we can't predict the market, but you know, burnout that's internal and that's up to you. That's a personal decision. Is there anything else you you talk to them and work them through to yeah. say, okay, like you should work towards it in the next year, the next two years, and this is what you should be focusing on? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, if you if you take a step back, and 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 one one example would be what's happening in your industry. Uh, for example, employee engagement software. Uh, go back three years um, was an interesting space. But with COVID, it became pretty hot, right? And you saw uh, Microsoft, you saw a lot of the, the huge companies uh, spend hundreds of millions, if not billions in this space. So if you're one of the hundreds of companies that's in that space, on the one hand, you say, wow, we're a hot space right now. My valuation is higher. But fast forward a year or two, your competitors now have billions of dollars instead of millions of dollars. And that's who you're competing with. So do you really think you can keep up with them? And so... So in some cases, you, you need to be honest and say, do I think I have a better widget that I can compete with these folks? And if not, there's consolidation happening. Happening, It might be a good time to, to roll up, right? So, so in every industry, it has those moments where things can change overnight. And you kind of have the haves and have-nots. And if you're, if you're a have-not, if you don't think you can compete, then, then being rolled up, even if it's not what you always thought it would be, is, is probably the, the, the wise way to go. Other macro level things, uh, you know, come down to valuations. Valuations have, you know, private valuations of 50%, public up 100%. You know, will that continue to go up? Maybe, probably not. Um, I would argue there's pressure that would make it come down. So, you know, if you spend another year and you increase your revenue by 50%, in theory, increase your valuation by 50%, but, but valuations come down by a third, your company's worth, worth the same amount. So you just worked a year, took all that risk. Um, other things that roll into it, you know, a lot of people, a lot of founders have a valuable company, right? Even a, you know, a $5 billion revenue company, depending on how much money that you've raised, even a, call it a 5X multiple, that's 25 million bucks. You know, if you've got 50% of the company, that's meaningful, life-changing money. Many people, uh, their, their personal balance sheet is relatively humble and they have a lot of value in the company. So they want to de-risk it. You know, so you don't have to sell it all. A lot of people think it's a binary event. If I sell my company, I'm out. And oftentimes you can, you can, anyway, you could take on private equity, growth money, even majority and take a second bite at the apple, be a, some, be a part of something larger. So, um, but yeah, back to, I think some macro level events, both within your, your industry and your domain, and then just the world in general, I think come into play. Mm. 
And, and how, how do you kind of explore if you're, because you, you obviously talk a lot of your time is, is with sellers, but also with buyers. Um, and then, you know, looking at both sides, you can see from, 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 from the outside, how do you know, um, you know, the real reason why, why the founders are typically looking to sell the business, you know, because if, if you're growing, like if you think about it, you have a good business, you said you have a good product, you're growing 40, 50% year over year, like, you know, maybe there's something wrong, right? And that's what we typically see is like, once you dig a little deeper, we've seen quite a few businesses, you know, on the outside looks pretty nice, but there's something very wrong sometimes. And they're lo- there's a reason why they're looking to offload it at this point. And maybe the buyer is just unaware of it. And, and how do you, you know, pick that, pick that and, and see through that? Yeah, I mean, we do our own um, sort of call it diligence, I guess, up front, just to, mm-hmm. to try to understand who the people are, why they want to sell, what they're trying to accomplish. And then, you know, just based on what we know about the market, do we feel we can deliver on that, right? If the expectations are unrealistic, then we'll, um, we'll then we, we won't overcommit. You know, we're going to say we can do things that we can't do. So we tend to be super transparent, though, with, with the buyers as well. And buyers get it. Like, they totally understand. They, they talk to hundreds and hundreds of, of, of entrepreneurs as well. And, and often what they really want to know does the person want to stick around? Are they burned out? Do they want out? Or do they, do they want to participate? And then they'll do diligence to kind of uncover other things, right? If you've got, I mean, if you've got tech debt, like if your platform is 15 years old, you know, big monolithic code base, and you're like, oh man, we, we can't compete and you don't want to build it. So you want to sell it. Well, that's going to get uncovered. Um, and, and the buyer will say, well, if we're going to rebuild it, why don't we just build it in the first place? Doesn't mean it can't be sold, but those things will be, you know, sometimes there could be, um, infighting internally between uh, I've seen CEOs and their boards that don't get along and they just want out. Sometimes founders that, that, that don't get along and they want out. So there are a lot of different reasons why people might want to sell a business, but it, um, or you see looming um, struggle to compete in a market, right? If a market's consolidating, they don't feel that they can compete. So, hmm. but, but again, I think it's, I do caution people you, you want to be transparent. People are going to do their diligence. They're going to find out. You don't want to waste a lot of time with the false premise only to have it un- uncovered later. You're better off being transparent up front and then the process tends to run more smoothly. Makes sense. Um, so I want to speak a little bit more about your work as, as an M&A advisor. You know, people don't see a lot of the work you do in the back end, which is uh, prior to actually going to the market with the deal, right? Um, so maybe you could just speak about what's the level of work and involvement you guys get into in the, the acquisition transaction and how do you really help the founder get the, the maximum value if, if they come to you and say, hey, I'm looking to sell? Yeah. One of the things that we do, I mean, part of it, we're, we're a little bit different. I mean, part of, I, I started the company um, when I was at Rockwell and three different companies. I, I was part of acquiring about a dozen companies. So I'm, I'm super familiar with the M&A process from the buyer's perspective. Um, why companies actually buy, what the approvals look like internally, the problems that can, can come up and what it takes to actually execute them. And then I was a, a founder as well and, and now talk to sellers. Um, but so the area, one of my frustrations with, with bankers, and there's some good ones that are out there. They're very smart people is, is their financial background. So I just look at anyone. I mean, how many financial people, accountants have you ever hired to run a sales process? Probably none. Pick your favorite CFO ever. You're not going to put them <laughs> in charge of sales and marketing, right? It's just a different skill set. on the same time, same point. Think of your favorite salesperson. You're not going to put them in charge of the finances, right? They're just very, very different skill sets. So, and I get that historically, businesses that had, for example, I was CEO of the publicly traded company. We had we had business in 15 different countries. We had work in process. We had assets. We had leases. We had foreign exchange. We had internal company transfers. You need a 
you need a, a banker for that. You've got a complex financial instrument. But both SaaS, most SaaS companies are are relatively light on the financials. They're relatively simple, but they're complex in the, in the value that they can provide to the buyer. So I argue that selling a technology company is more like selling a technology product than it is a financial instrument. So it's just a different type of positioning, helping the buyer. And often just with the experience of that on the buying side, I, I sometimes have more experience buying companies than uh, the people that we're selling to. So sometimes I can point out mistakes I've seen made in the past to help things uh, go more smoothly. But painting a picture of how the buyer can benefit, and again, just based on the fact that I've, I've done that before, I've been in their shoes, a, a, a compelling argument as to why they should buy this company and how it will help them accomplish their objectives on the revenue. So it's less about pushing and, and, and selling the company than it is about walking the buyers to the buying process. So it starts with, we do exhaustive research. So we do some segmentation, understand why would someone buy your company? So let's look at geographic expansion. So you're US-based, let's look at European, Asian, um, other companies in other parts of the world that might want to move into the US market. Let's look at um, you're, you're a product fit in this suite. So who has that suite? Um, so you're focused on SMB. All right, well, who are the big players that sell to SMB? This could be another product that they could sell to all of their existing clients. And then based on that, we build messaging and, and materials uh, that resonate with those people. So kind of, you, you've got a quote in here, Charles DeGaulle. I like the one, it's debated who actually started it, but it, it's, I apologize for the length of my letter. I didn't have time to write a short one. We write the short one. We, we, I always encourage entrepreneurs to nail it down five words. What do you do? And not what, not actually, what do you do? But why does someone care? Like the five words that describe why someone actually uses your product. What problems does it solve? So, um, so we'll do, so we get the messaging down. We spend a lot of time on the messaging. And then we do a lot of time on the, on the research to find anyone that fits those different segments that could potentially buy the company. And often, these are often, smaller companies that you wouldn't think could acquire, but they've got a private equity backer and a strategy to build a massive platform in that market. Um, yeah, so the, the, the research and the messaging is the, is the heavy lifting we do on the front. And then we do the outreach. We have initial conversation to kind of qualify the buyers. Again, sounds a lot like an enterprise selling process, which is our background. And then we'll do, a, we'll have, we call it a fireside chat with the CEO, kind of get to know each other in kind of 30 minutes. And then we ask for um, indications of interest. So how much will you pay? What's the structure look like? Um, what kind of diligence? You know, what, what risks do you see? Pick a short list, um, dig deeper, open up a data room, and then go to LOI, negotiate the best LOI, sign, close, refresh your bank account repeatedly until the money shows up, which is literally <laughs> what happens in the end. And then it's all nice. smiles and, and uh, it's a lot of fun. Nice. So uh, there's a saying that, you know, your final... Final buyer isn't who you normally expect to buy, um, but you know from, from your perspective, how much is it you know your own network that you're you know tapping into and you already have kind of uh, alliances or um, you know relationships with versus you know cold outreach to the list of buyers for every single uh, business you work with. That's a really good question. Um, so I think some bankers talk about their network, and I think that's a bit overrated. I think it's it's helpful. Um, and we've got a pretty extensive network. So, I mean, I can talk about the same thing, but, but I think having a relationship is, is most helpful when you're selling a commodity, right? If you're selling a copper, right? Because you can't differentiate yourself. So the relationship matters. If you have a differentiated product, right? Talk to anyone that sells technology. If you've got a differentiated product, being buddies with someone doesn't help, but being able to articulate how you can help that person's business be successful is more important. Um, 
And so, so on, I would say on the financial buyer side, we know, I'd say 98% of the financial buyers are private equity firms that buy SaaS companies. So we know, we know them and through them, we can access all of their platform companies. On the strategic side, we work with a lot of vertical niche software companies where we are very good at, at reaching the companies that we identify to be potential buyers. Many we know, we've had a, a run process there before, um, but, but even then corp dev people tend to rotate through. Um, so they're, they're changing faces all the time. We're very good at, so I'd say 65, two thirds of the time, it's, it's through a connection that we know. Um, and we're pretty broad, like even, even with LinkedIn, if we don't know someone, we know someone that knows someone and, and we have an access and then it's the right message in front of them. Again, they don't care because they know me and I'm their buddy. They only really only care if I'm representing something that they care about. Right. Which makes complete sense, right? You're not selling a chocolate bar. You know, somebody showed up at your door. This is a $10 million, $20 million, $50 million company. Like if you like it, it's a good company and it's presented. I, I don't care. Right. If you show me a good company, I'm, I'm going to pay for it. And I'm interested right? Yep. Right, regardless who it's coming from. Yeah. Makes, makes perfect sense. Right. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been super, super helpful. I think, you know, our audience is going to get tons of insights from this and, you know, can think about how they want to also structure their business and think about selling. Um, we'd love to kind of shift gears and move towards a little bit more personal, a little bit more rapid fire questions, make it a little more fun. Um, yeah. Ready for that? <laughs> I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. So but let's let's start off quickly, you know, share your, in a couple of minutes, you know, a couple, a couple lines. What's your background, past ventures up until why you decided to build Traction Advising? Yeah. Um, computer science, electrical engineer, back when it was not cool to be in computer science, uh, went down the sales route, rock automation, sales training program, was vice president of global sales, managed software business in the U.S. for a couple of years, jumped out, CRO of a startup, tech-enabled services company, scaled up from a million to 50 million, sold, um, was COO of a publicly traded company. Well, COO of a, of a, a French company, lived in Europe. And scaled that from 10 million to 120 million, bought by private equity, and then co-founded a, a fintech company, CEO for six years, sold that to a company in Chicago. So again, this is my experience with bankers. Acquired about a dozen companies along the way. My experience with bankers led me to believe that, that there was a better way to do that. So I, I I tried it. We were successful. One of our investors asked me to help on another project. And now the business has built up. I've got a partner in London and uh it's a lot of fun. I love the startup world, and this is a this is the best job I've ever had. I I, I just love it every day, just being involved with the, the intellectual side of it as as much as anything. Right, without having to be too involved in day to day operations of, of running and managing a huge team. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what was your vision when you when you first started traction advising, and would you say if it's so, how has it evolved over time to what it is today? I felt that there was a better way to position companies to be acquired, really walking buyers through the buying process, less about just spamming people and saying, are, are, are you interested? And particularly for smaller SaaS companies, the, the, the big bankers, they, you know, they're, they're really focused on you know, deals 200 million or more, even a hundred million, $50 million transaction is, is relatively small for them. And you get junior people on it who are, again, they're smart, but they just don't have any experience. So we just thought some senior people with a lot of experience, hands-on, um, was, was that, that we could do a better job. So that was six years ago. And um, turns out and we're pretty good at it. So you know. <laughs> you're still here. Awesome. Uh, what's, what's one piece of advice you wish you had known and would tell your 25-year-old self? 
Uh, don't be afraid to take risks. Um, I know on my path to CEO, I, 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 th I thought I had to learn. I had to be an expert at every, every function before I could be the CEO. And the reality is um, if you surround yourself with good advice uh, slash advisors um, and ask the right questions, you can, you, you can be a good leader sooner than later. You don't have to know everything. Just know, be honest about what you don't know. Surround yourself with people who are really good at the things you're not good at and, and be open to their advice. Be curious to what they have to say. Yeah. What? Love it. <laughs> what, what, make what sure you have the... good ones. Make sure you're getting good advice too. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's, that's key here. <laughs> um, what, what are some of the biggest challenges you're currently facing in order to continue to grow traction, traction advising? Meaning, you know, what, what keeps you up at night these days, if anything? The biggest thing for us, um, so Mark has an operating background, is we've got more opportunities than we can deliver on. So we're pretty choosy about who we work with, um, which is a good problem to have. And I just don't want to lose that hands-on approach. You know, many bankers handle six, seven, eight transactions a piece. Um, my partner and I, we, we'll, we'll handle one or two at a time. And, and we, do, we do almost everything ourselves. We're super hands-on. So you get senior execs handling things instead of a junior person. So I don't want to lose that. I don't want to become a, you know, a shop that just handles volume. Our goal, actually, our, our, our statistics, we close 90% of the transactions that we work on. Typical bankers, their, their average is 50%. And their goal is jam as many in and and then close 50%. Our goal is to be very thoughtful and close 100%. Uh, and actually, of the 10% that didn't close, some of those have come back around. So we actually might get back to 100%. Mm -hmm. So that's the biggest thing I struggle with is if we scale, do we scale? My goal when I started this was not to scale. My whole life has been about scaling businesses. Exactly. And this is one where it's, the intent was to keep it small. But there are interesting opportunities out there with some really fascinating founders that we'd like to participate in. We'd like to help them um, get to where they want to go. And how do we do that without breaking our model? Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Who or what are some of the best resources? Maybe mention three. It could be books. Uh, it could be people, mentors, or people you follow who you'd say have been the most instrumental to your success over you know, the last few years. Yeah. Well, I mean, a couple are, um, are, are probably pretty common, but I, I was a big fan of uh, like Steve Jobs and what, what he did and, and you know, the, the way he went about doing what he did, um, including um, failing, you know, and, and, and the fact that he failed really opened him up to doing you know, better things. Um, I think, you know, Elon Musk and his approach to doing things that he knows nothing about, but being fearless about doing things better than anyone's done them, even though he doesn't know how, I think is pretty remarkable. Um, and a book that I would say probably many people haven't heard, but drives, it's a little bit different, but it's called Paradox of Choice. And, and it really talks about too much selection actually makes people make worse decisions and fewer decisions. And I think that factors into uh, a business more than people think, make it easy for people to make a decision. It's, it's also a quick read too. So I recommend that. Awesome. We'll add those in the, in the show notes for people to check out. Um, obviously had a, a ton of success over your career and still continue to have it. What does, uh, how do you define or what does success mean to you today? Whether it's personally business, financial life, you know, there's no, there's no right answer. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. And there's been, I, mean, I could tell two stories too. We could do another podcast. There's been a lot sure. of success. There's been a lot of failure too. And I think, uh, the failures have really freed me to, to not be afraid to try because if you fail, you just start over again. I think success alone can be crippling because you're, you, it, it, you, you're afraid to fail because you've never failed. You, all you've had is success. And so it, 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 I think it becomes stressful on its own. Uh, but to me, 
it's really about being happy, like really understanding what, what makes you happy, uh, being intellectually stimulated, you know, being a, a, a part of the conversation with smart people, solving complex problems, creating those new connections in your brain, I think is more interesting than, than sitting on a beach. Um, you know, where, I think your brain starts to atrophy um, and helping people, you know, whether it's mentoring or even, I mean, I know we get, we get paid for doing this business, but I get as much, I probably get more gratification out of helping people accomplish their goals um, than, than what the, the money represents in the whole transaction. But uh, the smiles on the faces and the long-term friendships I've got with the people that we've kind of shepherded through the process is uh, invaluable. Right. The relationships you, you've, you've built and kind of the, the, the life, life-changing events you, you, you instill, right? And make that happen between connecting. It's pretty people. cool. So, that is pretty we're cool. on Zooms like this and literally when the money closes and I've taken pictures before and the smiles were like, oh my God, we did it. His, uh, his prices. Wow. Uh, you got to record those moments every single time. So much. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Well, what can, uh, you know, founders listening in, they want to get in touch with you, learn more about you and your company or anything, you know, you speak about where, where's the best place to get in touch? Yeah. Uh, so our website, actually the new one should go live today or tomorrow. So, uh, Traction Advising, so www.tractionadvising, one word.com. You can also email me directly at Lowell, at L-O-W-E-L-L, at tractionadvising.com. And LinkedIn is a good place to look as well. So just, uh, there aren't many Lowell Rickliffs, uh, mm-hmm. which is maybe good or bad on LinkedIn. So I'm pretty responsive on there as well. Sure, sounds, sounds good. Uh, for those listening in, we'll add those to the show notes. If you guys want to reach out, say hi to Lowell and see if he can help you guys with with your business as well. So thank you. Thank you so much, Lowell. This has been great. Really appreciate you jumping on. Appreciate ch- chatting today. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Thanks. You as well. Cheers. Thank you all for watching this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at Horizon Capital and myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please comment down below and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and see you on the next one.